Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Alan, bringing you this episode with Andy Puttacum, a former Buddhist monk and co-founder of the widely popular app Headspace. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. In his early 20s, Andy left his sports science studies to become a Buddhist monk. When he returned to the UK, he had one goal in mind, to teach mindfulness to as many people as possible. Today, Andy is an expert on meditation and mindfulness, which resulted in him co-founding Headspace, one of the most popular mindfulness apps today, which has more than 65 million users in more than 190 countries. This episode discusses his amazing personal journey and his thoughts on achieving mindfulness even during a global pandemic. In conversation with Vice President of Google Health, David Feinberg, here is Andy Puttacum, Mindfulness Made Simple. And here's Andy, who's the co-founder of Headspace, uh, someone who I got to know about four or five years ago, and really, really excited to have this conversation with you to talk about mindfulness. Uh, so welcome. Thanks, David. Thanks so much. It's, it's great. It's always great to, to chat with you guys. Thanks for having me, having me along today. Yeah, uh, before we get started, or as we get started, or probably most importantly as we get started, I think it's really important to reflect on what's going on, not only here in the U.S., but around the world, around racism, and wanted to check in with you on that, uh, kind of get your thoughts. Um, and, you know, uh, we were talking before we started how you're um, dealing with your two little kids and trying to explain what's going on with them, and my kids are older and are uh, very active in protesting and how my wife and I are kind of dealing with them. But but I, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, just uh, an incredibly difficult time, incredibly sad time, but also, I think, as we talked about before, an inspiring time because it feels like there is change and change is often, I mean, we talk a lot about this in meditation and mindfulness, change is often very uncomfortable. It's often very challenging. It's confronting. It forces us to be vulnerable. And in being vulnerable, we create a space where change can actually happen and take place. So I feel, I, like everybody, I'm sure, conflicted with so many different emotions, um, one of kind of grief and another of hoping that finally, you know, that we will create a situation collectively where we do actually learn where we do actually listen and where we start to you know share a greater sense of respect for every single person regardless of race and gender and sexuality and like i feel like the one thing that for me kind of uh you know meditation may not seem very kind of active you know and a lot of people have said sort of during this time well like how does meditation even show up in the midst of this and i always say kind of there is a passive side to meditation where we learn how to have a, a calmer and clearer mind so that we can sort of come at life or it, from a sort of slightly different different place. But there's a more active part as well. That quality that we're training, that quality of being present, of being aware, of being compassionate, compassionate in our meditation is about carrying that out of the meditation and into everyday life. So my hope is that this kind of inspires people to take time out to ensure they are resting themselves, but also that they apply those qualities of awareness and, and compassion so that they do show up and, and we all make a, make a difference together. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And it's, it's on top of, I don't think it's following, but on top of what we experienced with COVID, because I think COVID's still going on. We're seeing cases all around the world. And that's like a 
it's really been this kind of double whammy. Yeah, and look, I mean, we were, I, I think, you know, I've definitely felt it here in LA. We were all, everyone was, you know, sort of trapped inside and then and suddenly kind of everyone's, everyone's outside. And I, I think for so many people, kind of COVID presented challenges that they had never faced before in yeah. their lives, you know? And um, the difference I think is that throughout COVID, there was a, like it didn't affect everybody proportionately. And yet there was a feeling in the nature of a pandemic, perhaps that we were all looking at it through the, the lens of COVID. Whereas I think this particular instance, there's a lot of different lenses that are being looked through. So it's, it's sometimes more difficult to find kind of areas of where, where everyone's sort of coming together. But yeah, I think that that long period of time um, shut inside um, for a lot of people has really challenged mental health. There are a lot of people who were already vulnerable in terms of mental health, but the, it really came to the surface during, during those times. Yeah, we launched an anxiety screener. So if you were to Google anxiety disorder, you get to the right-hand side of the page, not where the links are, and you could do a self-check and and just have seen uh, so many folks kind of struggling with depression, anxiety, our PTSD, and our frontline healers. So let's get into the meat of this. And I think the best, one of the best stories I've ever heard is yours. And <laughs> it's the story of, you know, okay, I'm going to become a monk. And then you come back and I know you then had a co-founder that you worked with and you launched this thing and it wasn't always easy. Uh, and yet now um, I think you're bringing a lot of compassion and caring to, you know, hundreds of countries and millions of people. Can you, since I've had the privilege of hearing the story, will you tell, tell everyone else the story? Because it's really cool. I'd be happy to. I just, I assumed at the time that everyone was going off to the Himalayas to become Buddhist monks. I didn't realize it was, it was any different from anyone else. But like the, the context is, um, a, a lot of people ask whether you, you can teach children meditation. I was really lucky. The short answer is yes, by the way. We can talk about that in a, in a bit. But I was really lucky. I got introduced to meditation when I was 10, 11 years old. Uh, with my mom. Um, and it was really useful kind of in those early sort of teenage years, which are, are never straightforward. And um, and then I think like a lot of people, you know, I, I hit a point in my life where things were challenging enough that it caused me to question the path that I was on. Sometimes that hits us early in life, sometimes later in life. Uh, for me, it was a drunk driver that crashed into a group of, a group of us, of friends, outside a party one night, killing two people and injuring 12, 15 others. And I was really lucky I didn't get hit, but it did make me begin to think like what was important in life? What did I want to do with my life? What would give me a feeling of purpose? And I ran away for it for a little while, to be honest. I didn't like, didn't go straight off and become a monk. Um, I traveled, I tried to outrun my mind and um, to sort of get away from those thoughts. And then I realized like wherever I went, like there my mind was, it, it kind of followed me around. So that didn't work. Um, so I tried, you know, the usual things you try at, at those kind of ages, you know, drink and everything else. Always fairly sort of short-term success, but no lasting success. Um, and I think after, it probably took about two years, I was studying sports science at university and um, really passionate about physical health. I was competing in health. I was working in health. Um, and on the surface, I would say I was 
I definitely fit than I'd ever been, but I was, I was really physically healthy. But inside, my mind was churning. I never had a sense of kind of ease. Um, I felt quite restless um, and often very sad, actually. And so I think it just began this percolation inside. There was no kind of sitting down and trying to think, what should I do with my life? Just one afternoon, um, becoming a Buddhist monk. And I, I do, I am aware of how ridiculous it sounds, by the way. But one afternoon, like it just, it felt, I'd been reading a lot of books. My girlfriend was a Buddhist at the time. It just made a lot of sense to, rather than kind of trying to solve the thinking mind with the thinking mind, to try and go and find an environment where I could practice meditation. And for me, that had always been sort of the the Himalayas, the sort of Buddhist monks and nuns out there. And um, yeah, I, I quit university that day and um, and I took off to I took off to the Himalayas. Wow. And how'd the conversation go with, with the family? I mean, you know, I mean you you have you have children of that age. Um, I was what, 21 at the time. And um, my mum was, I think, incredibly proud, um, nervous, but proud. You know, she was um, into hypnotherapy. She was a hypnotherapist, psychotherapist. Um, she, you know, therapy had been part of our lives and meditation had been part of our lives. So I think a big part of it was really proud. Um, my dad thought I was joining a cult and um, was terrified. Um, my sister was just a bit bummed out that I was bathing on her and kind of, you know, Going, going to another country. Um, so I think there was, and friends as well, you know, I think some friends were very supportive and some friends felt slightly rejected, kind of why can't you find happiness with, with us, yeah. you know? And so it took a little while for all of that to, to settle down, but it all found its place. And then tell us about the experience. So the experience and for anyone thinking about, about go, taking that experience, I think, you know, there's a there's a honeymoon phase, and if you've done any sort of retreat or anything like that, you'll 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 kind of recognise this when you first go there. And this was way before social media and mobile phones and everything. So, but even then, there's a honeymoon phase where it just feels like you're away from the distraction of the world. Feels very peaceful. Feels very calm. Very easy. And then after a week or two, eh, starts getting a little more kind of challenging. You realise that oh wow. I just have to sit here with my thoughts and my thoughts are the same thoughts that I have back there, but now I don't have any distraction. Now I don't have anywhere to go. There's no pub to go to. There's no friends to call up. There's, there's not even any books to kind of, you know, uh, escapist type books to, to kind of read, you know? Um, so it's quite sort of challenging. And I would say not in a, in a negative way, but that is, that is then the, the path, you know, it's kind of, can we sit with the mind? not having any strong preference for how the mind behaves, but instead holding our seat with awareness, getting comfortable with thoughts coming and going, not getting involved in the thoughts, not buying into them or believing that we are the thoughts. And over time, I think that space starts to kind of increase and we tend to sort of feel less overwhelmed. The mind starts to quieten down a little bit. It doesn't necessarily kind of always sort of stop, so to speak, but it slows down. And and for me, the, the big unlock, and again, I'll say this for anyone, regardless of whether you're going to go to a monastery or you're taking a 10-minute kind of meditation session, I went with the idea that I was going to stop thoughts, that I was going to end thoughts, 
that I was going to be free from any kind of negative emotions, somehow almost escaping the human realm. I think in my mind, that's sort of what I, I thought. And I discovered it was a very different thing, actually. It was quite the opposite. It was rather than disconnecting, it was reconnecting. Rather than unplugging, it was plugging back in. And it was actually getting in touch with thoughts and emotions that I hadn't previously recognized or addressed, getting comfortable with them to such an extent where they no longer kind of influenced um, my mind or sort of got in the way of life, allowing me to be sort of a bit more, a bit more present, I hope. Yeah, so it sounds like actual presence, like you, you just are living in that moment. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because I like to point out that's not necessarily stable. Um, so it's, you know, I think there are, you know, these words like enlightenment and stuff get thrown around. And, and I really, and whilst they may seem irrelevant to most of us kind of just living everyday life, I think it's really relevant because we might think of enlightenment being something out there, over there, outside of ourselves, something that we need to get or obtain from somewhere else. And the way it was described to me, the way it was taught to me, the way I've experienced it is more when we are present and undistracted, that is a moment of enlightenment right there. And if we can, over time, build out that one moment to many moments and then many more moments, we start to get some stability in enlightenment. doesn't mean that we won't get thrown off course once in a while. Of course we will. But our kind of work, if you like, in mindfulness and meditation is trying to create that stability of present moments in our life. So now tell us the journey from there to Santa Monica and starting an app and <laughs> why, 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 why aren't you still there? What happened? Like, you know, yeah, the journey. I ask myself every day. No, I, um, I think um, I feel incredibly fortunate to one have gone there when I was young enough to be able to do that. You know, now I have a wife, I have children. I don't think anyone would be too happy um, if I just kind of took off and took off and left. Um, so it was really, it was a very organic, the whole thing actually has been incredibly organic. Um, I was in Moscow teaching meditation, um, still as a monk. So I'd gone from the monastery to teach in a meditation center. And I was meeting people who were feeling stressed, feeling overwhelmed, struggling in their jobs, struggling in their relationships, struggling to sleep. And they were coming for meditation. They weren't coming to learn Buddhist kind of rituals or tradition or psychology or, and it, it kind of really got me thinking, you know, like there was this incredible sort of thing that anybody could do. It was timeless. It was universal in, in nature. And yet lots of people didn't have access, access to it because they didn't really know what it was. It felt very mystical. It was often sort of uh, within a religion or a tradition or a culture, which they didn't necessarily understand. So I just started to think, you know, what would that look like? if it was presented in a, in a different way, um, in a way that would have made sense to me when I was, when I was younger, before I'd gone away. So I, I went back to the UK. I started, initially I started working in a, in a clinic doing one-to-one. -one. And then about two years in, I met my co-founder, Rich, um, Rich Pearson. And Rich was, he didn't come to the clinic. We were introduced through a mutual friend. He'll say this himself. He was he was burnt out. He was working in advertising in an agency. Uh, very demanding job. Desperate to kind of find a way to step out of his mind. Um, and I was looking for a way to take it outside of the clinic and to go beyond one-to-one. -one. So we just started chatting, uh, doing a skill swap. 
And I'd say within about two months, maybe three months, we've become such good friends. Didn't make sense to do anything else. And Rich had so many good ideas. When, when I first met him, the very first time we went out, he said, we should do the Nike Plus of meditation. And this was, I mean, apps had launched maybe five, six months before that. The iPhone was still kind of fairly new. I had no idea what he was talking about. I thought it was a terrible idea. And uh, so Rich very patiently kind of waited another couple of years while we did events and books until eventually we launched the app in, in 2012. And yeah, we came out here to, to Santa Monica about five, six years ago now, six years ago. And um, we've just been incredibly fortunate to be a part of a conversation where people are feeling more confident and more able to talk about their mental health um, and to find tools and services that help them address sort of not only the, the difficulties that they find in life, but also to build up a resilience, sort of to be used in, you know, less as an aspirin and more as a vitamin as well. And I hope that's where we're sort of heading towards. Yeah, so I got so many questions for you. <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, you know, when I was at UCLA about, uh, this is probably about 15 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, in child psychiatry, this... Uh, faculty member comes up to me and says, there's this mindfulness person in San Francisco. And should we hire this person and have her come down to UCLA and start mindfulness? And, yeah. uh, and it was particularly around kids with ADHD. Mm. Um, and I was like, yeah. And I met with the woman and her biggest concern was what if she moved from San Francisco to LA, started this program and nobody came. And the result is there's like now a mindfulness research going on. We didn't have audit. Eventually we did not have auditoriums big enough for everyone because it was the vitamin. Although there's pretty good research around some actual treatments um, yep. that can be infected, but it was this vitamin and it was like, and every time I'd see her, I'd like, Hey, remember you thought you weren't going to be busy. Like, like it just exploded. So for folks that aren't really familiar with, what you're talking about. Can you kind of give us the one-on-one on it so that we set the baseline? So what is mindfulness? What is yeah. meditation? What does your app do? Sure. Well, I definitely think it's worth um, separating out mindfulness and meditation because they get confused a lot and, and used interchangeably. Um, so the way I was taught, the way I un understand mindfulness to, to be um, is the ability to be present, free from distraction, with an open, curious, and kind mind. And you would that, that? It's so good. Just yeah, say it again. Sure. Um, so our ability to be present, free from distraction, with an open, curious, and kind mind. And it sounds like like nice idea. Great. Sure. But how do we actually show up in life and do that? It's really difficult to do that when, you know, we're scrolling through a social media feed, which is, you know, with everything going on around us, or we're caught up in the news cycle, or in the middle of our job or walking down the street. And so we kind of need an exercise where we actually train in that skill. And that's meditation, that's all it is. We remove ourselves from our everyday life for long enough. It doesn't have to be a long time, it could be a minute, three minutes, five minutes, whatever it might be. But long enough to gain familiarity and train that muscle in not being distracted, in being more present, and in being more present, being free from judgment, free from bias. And as we train in that, in our meditation, we start to bring that back into our everyday life. And we start to realize, huh, actually meditation and life, maybe they're not so separate. 
maybe kind of what we're doing here is impacting here and what we're doing here is impacting there. And all of a sudden we start to actually live mindfulness rather than seeing meditation as something separate from, from the rest of our life. So, yeah. yeah. It becomes second nature. Yeah, exactly. And I think to, to begin with, it does require a little bit of effort. You know, there's a little bit of effort in terms of reminding ourselves to, to sort of do that. But over time, like most things, like most skills, there's, a, there's more of an effortless quality about it. Um, and it becomes just part of how we kind of show up in, in life. And that was the passion, you know, from, from day one with meditation. It was, okay, how do we demystify this? Because it was way easier to talk about a technique rather than mindfulness sometimes can feel almost like a, a philosophy for life. So it's like, okay, let's demystify the technique. If our first 10 years were about demystifying meditation, I, I suspect our next 10 years are going to be about demystifying mindfulness and, and ensuring people have the tools to bring those qualities into, into their everyday life in a more sort of tangible and direct way, perhaps. So can, if it's not too personal, yeah. what, what's your own personal practice? Yeah, so it's a little bit kind of different in so much as when you, when you leave the monastery. So when you're at the monastery, you make some commitments and those commitments are for life, regardless whether you're a monk or not. Um, so I have a number of different practices, um, from my, from my time as a monk. Um, and most of those are, they're, they're a mixture of visualizations, um, recitations. Um, and then I, then I do what's called resting awareness. So I simply sit. So I don't focus necessarily on the breath or I don't have an object to focus. Um, I tend to just sit and allow the mind to sort of be with itself. Um, it's something, if anyone, if any of you have tried at the end of the Headspace sessions, I'll always say at the end, okay, let go of any focus on the breath and just let the mind do whatever it wants to do. Now, very often, people struggle to maintain focus when they're focusing on the breath. But at the end, when they say, okay, just let the mind be free, it's kind of like, huh, my mind doesn't want to do anything now. And that's, that's kind of what we're beginning to train in that part of the exercise not necessarily needing an object to focus, but just allowing the mind to still maintain maintain that awareness. So I try and do that every, every well, I do it every single day. Um, I try and do it in the mornings, but with young children, that can be tricky. So it often gets pushed down to, to lunchtime or the end of the day. And what about with your kids? So I think you said they're little ones. When, when are we, how, how does it play yeah. in the household? Yeah, so... Um, it's interesting, actually, even with, you know, people often ask, how do I get my husband and wife to um, meditate as well as kids? Um, and I always say, just ne never try and force that. Um, I was with, I, I mean, I've been married to my wife for a long time now, but we were together, I would say, for a good couple of years before she even tried meditation. It was definitely something I never, I never pushed onto, onto her. And it was something she, she chose to do herself. And and with our kids, we're trying to create a similar sort of environment where we create the framework, we create the, the, the space and the opportunity to do it, but we're never going to force them to do it. So every, every day we try before bedtime. Um, it's a great way of transitioning to, to bedtime. Um, ironic, ironically, they, obviously they like using the, the phone because it's a screen and you know it's a thing for them to press start on and everything else. Um, it's a bit weird for me because I'm listening to me, um, but we, uh, we, we we flip it over. And um, interestingly, like the three-year-old took to it really quick. So he was he was two when he started 
he, he was definitely enjoying it at two. Um, a little bit restless. The five-year-old, probably not until he was five, did he really kind of go, hmm, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. So I think just being really flexible with kids and never think that kids aren't going to get it. I mean, kids get it so much quicker than we do. They have none of the baggage, none of the you know preconceptions and misconceptions to get over and get past. They just they're just comfortable. And if you are at home and you're trying this, and your kid gets up and starts running around and screaming and shouting and waving their fluffy toy or whatever it might be, don't think they're doing something wrong. Don't think you're doing something wrong. For me, that is just that is the moment. And we let our kids. Sometimes two or three of us might be lying on the floor and the other one will be running circles around us. It's, you kind of just have to let go of any idea of what it should be and just create the space for them to, to be quiet and fuel to, to spend some time together. Just to be. Just to be. That's yeah, it. beautiful. So talk about the app. So what does the app do? And also, can you talk, because it's I've just been so impressed by the scale um, like how, how many, you know, if it's not too personal, how many people are using the app and how many countries, sure. the, the whole thing? I mean, I'm always humbled um, when talking to about scale when I'm chatting to Google, David, because, I mean, you know, it's all it's all relative. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, we we never imagined we'd be able to reach as many people. I think I think we're not far off kind of 70 million people um, in 190 countries around the world. Um and it's just such a, you know, diverse population. People have, and again, it comes back to that timeless, universal, doesn't, you know, it, it's there for anyone and everyone to, to learn. And that's the thing that excites me still to this day, kind of, I still love getting in rooms with people from lots of different backgrounds. And in that moment when you sit, you know, and you let go of the, the thinking mind, we're all kind of sharing this, common human human connection but yeah the app i mean you could write right now so we did something specific for for covid normally you can download it you download it for free and there's free content on there or there's paid content um where you go into to courses specific for sleep and anxiety and depression and many other things um but we made a decision during covid to make it free for all teachers to make it free for all healthcare practitioners and to create a collection called Weathering the Storm, where there is free content that anybody can use. Don't have to, don't have to pay for it or anything. So for anyone interested in giving, giving it a go, um, now, would be a, now would be a good time. Good time to do it. Yeah. Good. good. And let's talk about the research. So, um, uh, so does this stuff really work? Well, you know, where's the proof? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, when I went away, you know, I... I didn't have any research. I didn't know. And at the time, I didn't care. And for me, that was fine. But for a lot of people, it really matters whether we've got hard data. And I think, you know, when we started Headspace, there was already a couple of thousand of papers, but the research was not in any way rigorous. Um, I think, you know, it just, it just wasn't, we just hadn't kind of caught up with it. It was still kind of new enough that we weren't quite there. There was new technology coming in as well with fMRI scanning and that kind of thing. So uh, we, we're now, uh, we're midway through about 75 different clinical trials around the world. Um, 25 have been completed, they're published. Um, and we can now say with, with confidence that, it, that Headspace can reduce stress, that it can improve focus, 
that it can reduce aggression, that it can increase compassion, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and I think that gives people confidence. It allows them to actually sort of see, okay. And then we've even kind of built in sort of controls now as well, where I'm doing sort of guided non-meditations with sort of control groups. So we can actually kind of see it's not just about relaxing. It's not just about stopping. It's not just about listening to someone talking more slowly. It is that there's something in the mechanism of mindfulness itself. And we probably haven't got time to, to go into it in detail, but just to mention, you know, and I found this really helpful when I learned about it, this idea of sort of neuroplasticity and our brains kind of not being fixed. Um, I always used to think that I would get to a certain age and then my brain would just degenerate over, over time. And what the research into mindfulness has shown is that, and especially with the MRI scanning, we can see what happens before, during and after meditation and during a course of meditation. And we know that in the same way that when we go into a gym and we work a particular muscle and it gets more blood flow and it gets thicker and stronger in just the same way, the cortex in the brain responsible for those feelings of, of happiness, of well-being, it receives more blood. It gets thicker. It gets stronger. So we spend more time there. So even on those days when we sit down and we feel like, is anything really happening when I'm just following my breath? I'd be reassured that the science is strong and that even if we can't see it, something's, something's happening up there. Yeah. So creating the pathways. And, and as a practitioner with ch children for child and adolescent psychiatry, it was so amazing because if you could just make a small change in their development, it, it just changed the whole trajectory of their life. And we used to think it was just kids because the neuroplasticity we thought kind of ended. And now it's no grownups can do this too. And I, I just think uh, it gives you this chance to really change where you're going to be in, in the next, well, it'll change your physiology and your mental standpoint yeah. and community and everything. Yeah. And what about for someone who's brand new to this? So it feels creepy. What do I do first? What if I don't do it right? What if I don't breathe at the right second? Like, how does the app take you through that? Yeah, I get it. I always, I always think it's a bit like learning to, to drive a car or something. You know, it's just nice to have someone kind of sat in the seat kind of next to you. And that was the idea. You know, that's why a lot of the, not all of them, but a lot of the meditations are guided. And, you know, just so you feel like you have someone kind of sitting next to you and, when the mind does wander off, which inevitably will wander off, kind of there'll be someone to say, oh, and hey, if your mind wanders off, just come back again. Yeah. I cannot tell you how many emails I get from people saying, it's crazy. I can't believe you You know when my mind's wandering off. Well, no, that's the human condition. Our minds just kind of wander off like that. So I always, I always think kind of, look, come at this like an experiment. Because a lot of people think, okay, I'll try it one time. Well, yeah, maybe the penny will drop first time, but it won't always drop first time. So I always say, kind of try it for 10 days and commit. doesn't have to be even 10 minutes. You could do three minutes, five minutes. Do it a few minutes a day for 10 days and see for yourself if it makes a difference. And if beforehand you thought it wasn't going to make any difference and it doesn't make any difference, great. You've proven yourself. But maybe. Like, I just feel like for all of us right now more than ever, just to be open and interested and curious to see kind of how things feel when we sit with them can be really helpful. And it may well feel really alien at first, like in the, the midst of all the distraction and the busyness of life, to sit still free from that can feel really strange. And you might find yourself a bit fidgety, a bit agitated, 
you know, and that's all part of it. It's all normal. Give it time over a few days. It starts to feel more normal. And um, yeah, m most people seem to find a huge amount of benefit from it. Yeah, you could almost make a case that at this time, it's more needed than ever. Yeah, I, I really believe so. You know, I think, um, you know, I know we, we, we chatted and I was saying like, you know, you have this, you have this passive, I, I don't like to refer to it as passive, but just in terms of differentiating, you have this element or quality of, of meditation of mindfulness that allows, a, allows the mind to be calmer, that allows us to be clearer and to allow us to get a different perspective. And then there's this like this more active element where it's sort of, okay, we have those qualities. What is the intention we put behind those qualities to go out into the world and make a positive difference in our life, in the lives of the people around us and in the communities around us as well? Great. And this is fantastic. I want to let people know that they can drop questions into the YouTube chat, um, uh, which we, Andy's willing to take questions, which is great. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get different perspective as we're kind of waiting for the folks to bring in some questions. Um, what, what do you, where do you think you're going next? How do you continue this? Is it more just continue to expand this or do you start thinking, well, I, there's these adjacencies that we want to get, get involved with? Yeah. So up, up to this point, I think, well, actually for many years, we thought about it specifically in terms of sort of the, the consumer platform and how we could best, sort of um, offer our members that, you know, the best experience possible. Um, and then, you know, we just started getting businesses as well, kind of reaching out saying, well, we'd love this for our employees. So B2B became a kind of separate part of the company. Um, and then healthcare. So we actually have a chief science officer and a team of about 15, 20 um, people in that team who are working on how do we actually produce, uh, create and produce a prescription quality product um, so right now, doctors and therapists recommend it, um, but this would allow doctors to prescribe it and insurance companies to pay for it. So we're kind of working across all, all different three sections of the, of the company. Um, but as we do that, we're trying to build out the content in a way that, and obviously this is very much of this time and of this, of this moment, that better reflects the diversity of all of our communities. You know, it's, this is a very, we're a slightly unusual offering in so much as like it's not Peloton style where we kind of said, okay, like let's bring together lots of lots of different sort of teachers and trainers. And this was just a guy who had learned some meditation who wanted to share that. And it's just kind of grown into this thing. So now we're kind of looking at this thing, kind of go, okay, but it's a really, you know, now it's a global thing. Like how do we ensure that, you know, it's, it's represented in a way and presented in a way that really appeals and speaks and resonates to, to every community around the world. Yeah, I love the prescription. When I was at my last place in Pennsylvania, we prescribed food to diabetics and provided them the food, which had amazing out. I mean, it was better than medication. And that's actually we got to know you because we wanted to be able to kind of prescribe this type of treatment. That's how it all started. And something about the prescription um, yeah. kind of validates it, and then you and, and it gets you started. And then to your point, if you do it for ten days and it works, you're gonna you're gonna keep doing it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So, so I think as we build that out and we add in sort of other, other elements of kind of health coaching as well and actually supplying kind of coaches alongside that, um, I think it starts to look really different and a, and a really credible offering sort of in the medical sort of healthcare world. So why don't we go ahead and take some questions out there. Um, from Sherby, talks at Google, quick to Andy. Are there plans to bring Headspace app in any other local languages apart from English? 
There are, yeah. So we started this process about uh, two, two and a half years ago. Um, so it's already available in German, in French, in Spanish, in um, Brazilian Portuguese. Um, and we're continuing to look at sort of which which markets to to, to roll those out into. Um, but yeah, we, you know, our mission is to improve the health and happiness of the world. We can't do that if we're only speaking in English. So um, we are thoroughly committed to making it an international sort of global product. Great, great question. Why don't we take another one? And I think you can see them too, so I don't need to actually yeah. read them for you, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, thanks, Annie. Headspace has helped me through a lot of tough moments. I keep doing the pro levels over and over again. I keep discovering new things. What's the next step? Um, thanks, Dan. Um, so look, that brings up a really interesting question itself, um, and I'll make some suggestions, Dan. But the, I think we're just we're so conditioned into thinking kind of okay, we do one thing and then we do the next thing, and and like it's it's like this is sort of linear our learning. Funny enough, you know, if I think back over all those years, kind of being away and sitting. Um, the breath and just a simple act of sitting with the breath becomes a really simple and profound thing. It's not like you get past it. It's not like you go kind of move, move beyond it. It's that it deepens, it becomes, you know, the understanding of it changes and the experience of it kind of changes. And I think, you know, Stan, you were saying, saying there kind of, even though you've done the same thing many times, you keep learning new things. And that's because every time we do that new thing, our mind is in a different place. It's not the same mind that it was before. So always looking at meditation kind of in that context. Um, but I would, if you've, if you've done those, um, those pro packs, I would probably look at either everyday headspace um, and set it to a time length that you feel kind of is, is helpful. Um, and then there's a different fresh teaching every day and a, a quote for you to kind of take away for, for the day. Um, or if you're, it's quite okay as well to break that as a daily sort of pattern and if something comes up in life to pull out one of the packs that feels kind of most relevant so if you're struggling in a particular aspect of life or if you're thinking how you know maybe in the news at the moment you're thinking like okay how how can i be more i don't know more open or how can i be more kind or how can i be more gentle finding those packs and actually sitting with those and making those part of those those sort of journeys in life yeah great great advice great question uh, from Tim, are there any lessons you've learned from the experience of launching the app that surprised you? Things that you didn't know as a practitioner. I mean, thanks, Tim. I mean, everything has surprised me. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't come into this. I didn't leave the monastery um, and come into this knowing anything about business, anything about technology. Um, you know, it, it has been such a steep kind of learning curve, and I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, and appreciative that I've been joined over the years by a team who are able to do all those things far far better than far better than me. I think the one thing that surprised me is that um, it's it's not easy, and it's not that I went into it thinking it was. I, I had a very naive kind of. I think both Rich and I. I think part of the reason we've got on so well over the years, we just think like, everything is possible. And we even have a, at the, at the entrance way to every office, um, we have in Tibetan written by um, one of the monks from the, the monastery, a quote from one of my teachers that says, only the impossible is worth doing. And I think that reflects our kind of mentality. We went into it thinking, we can do this. And we thought, mm, well, to reach maybe 10 million people, maybe we need, I don't know, like maybe 10 people. 
kind of okay but let's never do, let's never have more than 10 okay and then we got to like 10 people we like, okay uh we're probably going to need like 20 people and and the team has grown and grown over time and i never realized in so, meditation is so simple in some ways but in order to scale it and to make it available kind of you know around the world it requires so many brilliant people who have to have so many talents in so many different areas and i just i never imagined what it would take in terms of a team to make it happen um and yeah i'm just deeply grateful that i get to work with a with an incredible team who make that happen every every single day yeah that's very googly the uh deliver the impossible kind of thing you know like right like, let's map the world or something you yeah right yeah 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 yeah, and now it's been a monastery, you know. I, I kind of I love that. I love that they they think about they think about it in a similar in a similar way. Yeah. Um, yeah. What positive impacts have you seen? In, I don't know. Can everyone else see these questions as well? I don't, don't know because we may just do audio, so I think people can see them. And then we go to audio; they'll all get to hear them. Okay. okay. This is from um, Alexa. Um, what positive impacts have you seen in societies where meditation and Buddhism have been more deeply embedded? And how do you see this influencing American society as knowledge of this practice grows? It's a great question. So I, I wonder, you know, I think it will depend on how we integrate mindfulness and how we think about it. Um, there is the risk of it being, um, being sort of made more of a sort of a commercial kind of type offering, a material type offering. Um, whereas in many of the cultures and countries where it's existed in the past, it's normally been kind of part of a broader philosophical or religious kind of tradition. So I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Um, my main hope is that the compassion element is not lost. The thing that I saw immediately when meditation and mindfulness started coming across to the West was there was a huge amount of focus on attention, on awareness, on not being distracted. And those things are really, really important. But if you go back to that original definition of mindfulness, and that open, curious, and kind mind. For me, unless we have that soft, compassionate, empathetic mind, there is something missing in our practice. And I don't mind saying myself, for the first few years of, of practice, there wasn't a strong emphasis on that in the monastery I was in. And it wasn't until I went to another monastery where that was the only emphasis that I really started to understand kind of the, the benefits of that um, and the implications of that as well. So. Yeah, that's that's kind of my my hope. I, it's interesting. It's hard to make sort of broad statements about societies and communities. Um, and look, there are there are many. It's interesting because there are so many different countries that have Buddhism kind of at their heart, and yet they they manifest so so differently. Um, but yeah, my my big hope is that we will bring a. If you think about that again, that that definition of mindfulness. If we could, as collectively individuals, collectively, communities, as a nation, if we could be more present, if we could be less distracted, if we could have a more open, curious, and kind mind, the implications of that are so profound. And it's really tempting to wait for it to happen. But it won't happen on itself. Like each and every one of us has to take a responsibility to say, I'm going to be part of that. And when we all start to do that, and when it becomes accessible for everybody, when it feels relevant for everybody, where there's no sort of like economic constraints on people from doing this, when everybody has access to it, 
and everybody is able to apply it in a way that feels relevant to their life, their culture, their community, then I think we start to see kind of the possibility and the potential for, for really profound change. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a real call to action too. I mean, it, it's, it yeah. seems accessible and could have this great impact. Happy to take more questions. I think we got a bunch of them. Uh, Matthew, um, Andy, how do we know we're, we're progressing with our practice? I'm 90 days in and I'm enjoying it, but it hasn't gotten easier. Love that question. Thanks, Matthew. Um, so progress in meditation is a really, really tricky thing um, because, as I said before, the, the mind that's doing the judging, it's not like that we have one mind that stays here and our practice kind of moves like this and the mind here is able to compare this with that. Um, our mind is sort of moving with the with the progress. So it's very, very difficult. It's also maybe not that helpful to think about it in terms of progress because that suggests that there's a finish line, there's a timeline. I would look at this as a journey of a lifetime. We're just sitting and we're pausing each day to sit and observe the mind. So rather than waiting for something to happen, rather than thinking something will happen, because that changes the, the nature and the unfolding of the meditation, then we're kind of, there's a, a little bit more kind of effort involved. There's a little bit of desire involved. We're kind of, there's, we're waiting for something in the future rather than being present with what's happening right now. So as much as possible, and I know it's a big ask because we're conditioned that there will be some kind of result at the end, as much as possible to recognize the result is in this moment. The moment we let go of trying to get somewhere or get something in the future or the past, we find ourselves in the present. And in that moment, there is a sense of freedom. That's the reward. It's not somewhere else. It's not in the future. And to begin with, we get distracted a lot. So we don't get to experience that that often. But over well, time, it happens less. Sorry, David. It's been totally great to be present with you. I just want to thank, first of all, the audience for some great, great questions. Andy, uh, thank you for your part in making the world more compassionate, more open, making this more accessible to people. Uh, this has been a real, real pleasure. And um, uh, I, I just want to say how grateful we are to have been able to spend this time with you. And, and for those of us who use Headspace, we spend time with you all the time. So it's, it's fun to have it in real life. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. Thank you to everyone for, for tuning in. Thank you for the questions. And, and again, just as a fi final, final call for action, even if you think you are not the kind of person who would benefit from, from meditation, just give it a go for 10 days. See how it feels. See if it makes a difference. And maybe you might surprise yourself. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon.